Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures again with us as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what is the Christian Gospel? What did Jesus and the Apostles challenge their audiences to believe as the Gospel or good news? What did Jesus mean by the phrase, so often found in his teaching, the kingdom of God? When did you last hear a preacher or evangelist invite us to repent and believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God, as Jesus invited his audiences to do in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15? And indeed, throughout the length of his whole ministry, constantly Jesus summoned the public to action based on believing in the good news of the kingdom of God. Quite remarkably, we find an absolute unity between Jesus and Paul in this matter of their preaching. The heart of their gospel is identified by this term kingdom of God. In Luke 9, verse 11, we find Jesus welcoming the people and beginning immediately to talk about the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 28, and verse 30, we find that the Apostle Paul, following Jesus down to the last detail, welcomed the people, Luke says, and began to speak about the kingdom of God. And so we believe we must be on target then in our attempt to follow the example of Jesus and Paul if we too, in the 1990s, continue to concentrate on this central topic that underlies all the teaching and preaching of the New Testament, namely the gospel about the kingdom. Our purpose, as you see in these series of programs, is to ask some of the most fundamental questions about the Christian faith which too seldom get dealt with in public preaching. What was this gospel that Jesus preached? What is the meaning of faith or believing? What did the New Testament church offer the public as a summons to belief and action? What indeed is the reason for the white-hot urgency with which Jesus and Paul always conducted their ministry? What was at stake as far as they were concerned in their tireless effort to get a response from the public in regard to the gospel about the kingdom of God? We've been saying that Jesus and Paul and all the apostles, indeed all the writers of the New Testament, were in the immortality business. It was their absolute conviction that the response we make to the message of the kingdom of God as it came from the lips of Jesus is critical for our ultimate destiny. That's to say, will we be members of the kingdom of God and immortal beings through the resurrection when Jesus comes back? Or will we tragically be rejects, mere refuse of the earth to be dismissed from the presence of Jesus when he returns to establish the kingdom of God on this earth? We want to demonstrate from the text of Scripture itself that these are vital questions for all of us. Jesus is not a figure that you can dismiss. Oh, you may have your objections to religion or churches, but you cannot make the failings of the church an excuse for ignoring the claims of Jesus. We want to expose you to those claims, heard, so to speak, directly from the text of the records of his life, preserved for us in the Scriptures. And by Scriptures, of course, we mean both the Hebrew Bible, 
what we rather unfortunately call the Old Testament, and in addition the New Testament documents, which are the culmination of that Hebrew Bible on which Jesus was raised and reared. We've been insisting in our discussions that we must understand Jesus in his first century Jewish context. It's a fatal mistake to read our own 20th century ideas into the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, and we must beware of reading our own traditional ecclesiastical church traditions into his teachings as well. The safe way to read the New Testament is to put ourselves back, so to speak, 2,000 years and to think in terms of the Jewish context in which all of the work and words of Jesus were performed. Now, to do that is not as difficult as it might appear. We have the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to guide us. And as my professor in theological college told me, the closer we come to understanding the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the closer we shall come to the heart and the mind of Jesus, because Jesus was a Jew who believed in the sacred scriptures of the Hebrew Bible and built his whole teaching on that solid foundation. We, on the other hand, tend to come out of an environment where we've been strongly influenced, whether we realize it or not, by the Greek westernizing influence which occurred in the early centuries of church history. Few realize, although scholars know this well, that in the second century, soon after the death of the apostles, the original Christian faith underwent a considerable transition a transformation, if you like, a transmutation even, when it left the safe haven of the Jewish environment in which it was born and sailed out into the stormy and confused seas of the world of Greek philosophy. You see, most of the early so-called church fathers who wrote at a time after the end of the New Testament were Greeks. In fact, all the ones we have preserved for us wrote in Greek and were Greeks, many of them trained in Greek philosophy. And the question is, did they relate sympathetically with the very Hebrew faith that was preached by Jesus and the apostles? That's a critical question for all of us, because if we believe in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, calls it, then we owe it to ourselves and our families to get in touch with that original faith as it appears for us documented faithfully in the pages of our Bible. So with that in mind, let's face one of the major questions of New Testament understanding head on. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Of that there can be no doubt. A child of ten or a seasoned scholar will come to exactly the same conclusion. Open the New Testament in any translation. It wouldn't matter what version you read, and you're bound to come to the conclusion if you read objectively that Jesus was concerned above all with what he called the gospel about the kingdom of God. In fact, his first command involves a response to the gospel of the kingdom. He came into Galilee, we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and commanded his public, his audience, to repent, that's to say, to turn around, to reorientate their lives in a new direction, towards a new horizon, and to believe in the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. And in those very verses, Jesus describes that kingdom of God gospel as God's message. You see, Jesus did not come preaching himself at this stage in the ministry at least. 
He directs all attention to his father and to the message of God because he saw himself as a spokesman for the one God of Israel. Jesus' father was the one who had mandated this preaching of the gospel. That's where Jesus begins. And so the very first logical question to be asked then is simply this. What was this kingdom of God which was so central in the teaching of Jesus? Well, that question can be answered fairly simply. If we are prepared to put away our own prejudices and our own traditions for a moment, our own vague, perhaps, our own vague impressions of what we think the kingdom of God is, to put those away for the moment and to consider that the kingdom of God was a well-known phrase in first century Palestinian Judaism. The kingdom of God was nothing less than the national hope of Israel. It was a term based on what most of the prophets of the Old Testament had said, namely that one day God was going to begin to reign and rule on the earth in a new way through his son and servant, the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. That again is fundamental to any study of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. There can be no question that the prophets of Israel looked forward to a great and glorious day coming in which the Messiah would command the nations to be at peace and he would summon them to a massive re-education program in Jerusalem and following that event, the nations would indeed beat their swords into farm implements and worldwide disarmament would take place. That is the story we find constantly underlined in the words of the prophets of Israel. Now we either take these to be idle dreams, the figment of the imagination of overexcited Israelite prophets, or we take this as a very revelation of the great God's plan to establish just that, peace on earth, through his Messiah ruling in the coming kingdom. I opt for the second possibility. After these 40 years of Bible study, I am utterly convinced that the Bible cannot be dismissed as the work of religious enthusiasts. It comes by direct inspiration to those prophets of Israel from the one God, the Creator. No other possible explanation of the facts of the Bible is possible. Now, Jesus was equally convinced that he spoke as a spokesman for God his Father. And in announcing the time being fulfilled and the kingdom of God being at hand, he was simply saying that with all urgency we are to prepare for the imminent coming of the kingdom of God. Well, you may say 2,000 years have passed and the kingdom still hasn't come. And the Bible's response to that objection would be that all the prophets of the Old Testament viewed the kingdom of God as the most urgent event on the horizon of each one of us. We don't know how long we may individually live and we are going to face that kingdom of God, either to enter it or to be rejected from it when it appears on the earth at Jesus' second coming. So the kingdom of God then is the central warning message of Jesus. It is both a promise and a threat and we are urged to believe in that kingdom and to reorientate our lives in accordance with the teachings of Jesus so that we may be prepared and ready to enter the kingdom of God when Jesus returns to establish it on this earth. Now the arrival of the kingdom of God is certainly at the heart of Jesus' message along of course with the resurrection in the future 
by which he will bring all the faithful of all the ages to life so that they can indeed participate in the future kingdom. That kingdom is based on Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. These are passages of Scripture that we will be looking at in detail in future programs. They represent a picture of the future in which final salvation will come to the earth, and that salvation will be both social and political and spiritual through the exercise of the sovereignty of God by placing his representative, the Messiah, in Jerusalem as head of a new world government. Jesus is coming again in power and great glory to change the structures of human government once and for all and forever. Now, we may have a foretaste of that kingdom by receiving the spirit of that kingdom in advance of its coming. It's going to be a kingdom of God on the earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, they're going to inherit the earth. Don't be misled by the Jewish circumlocution, the kingdom of the heavens, which positively does not mean that the kingdom of God is going to be in heaven. That term has misled many people to thinking of heaven as the objective of Christian faith. No, the kingdom of God will be on the earth, Matthew 5, verse 5. The kingdom of the heavens simply means the kingdom that's coming from heaven, according to the picture in Daniel chapter 7. We have some free literature we'd like to offer you if you'll call us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. We invite you to check our findings carefully in your own Bibles at home. Meanwhile, join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.